you remember when Saul lost his kingdom? So Saul, the first king of Israel, lost the throne when he turned against God, when he refused to obey God's law, and when he ignored the counsel of Samuel, God's prophet. And on that day, Samuel spoke these words. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Better than you. The Lord has given the kingdom to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, what does that mean? We've talked a lot about the better man, haven't we? David is the better man that Samuel foretold. David is a man after the heart of God. He's faithful when Saul is not. He speaks with God. He hopes in God. He protects God's people because David is the better man. But David is merely a man. Like Saul, he was born into sin. Like Saul, he is haunted by the passions of his flesh. Like Saul, his sin is working to ruin him and to undermine the work of God. So what is it ultimately that makes David the better man? That's a question that this passage will answer. We've also spent a lot of time over the last few years reflecting on David as a foreshadow of the coming Messiah. And one of the purposes of this book is to teach us that David is like the Messiah that's to come. His words and his work and his faith and his might are foreshadow of the one to come. We can learn about Jesus by studying the shape of this story, but David is not the Messiah. That's also one of the purposes of this book, to make crystal clear that while David may teach us about the coming king, he is not the coming king. And David is like the Messiah in some ways, and he's most definitely not like the Messiah in other ways. This passage will teach us how David is not like the Messiah, and it will do so in the most peculiar way. This passage will teach us how David is not like the Messiah by remembering three times that David did the right thing because God would not allow him to do the wrong thing. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. It's not the whole passage, by the way. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is that I'm not reading all of it. If I'm dividing the text correctly, then you can't read chapters 24, 25... Or 26, independently. That's not how they work. We have here three episodes of David's life, all interwoven and related. And I've chosen not to read it all for two reasons. First, the passage itself is over 2,700 words, and that's a lot to read in the short time that we have this morning. But the second reason is that the first and the third stories are very, very similar. See, this passage works a little bit like a sandwich. The top slice of bread and the bottom slice of bread are made of the same stuff. And in the center is something different. Now, look, make fun of me later for this awful analogy. But until then, just go with it, okay? When you're eating a sandwich, it's the center of the sandwich that really gives the whole sandwich its identity, right? 
Like you don't ever order a white bread sandwich. You order like a turkey and Swiss or a peanut butter and jelly, right? Dude, just go with it. <laughs> this passage works a little bit like that sandwich. You've got two episodes of David's life that are very, very similar, but the author doesn't explicitly tell us the significance of those events. But right in the middle of these episodes is a story that's so richly punctuated with meaning that it sort of does the work of interpretation for us for all three episodes. So I want to quickly review the first and the last episode of this passage, and then we'll read the centerpiece. You can find the first episode in in, in chapter 24. We won't read it together, but you may want to turn there for reference. You don't have to. So the action of this episode begins when Saul hears that David has hidden in the wilderness at a place called En Gedi. Now, I'm not sure what you know about Israel, but it's helpful to point out that the southeast region of Israel is a barren wasteland. Miles upon miles of rocky plateaus and a large, tepid sea full of salt are its most notable features. In other words, it's hard to survive there. But there's a place in the middle of this desert called En Gedi. And En Gedi is an oasis that's sort of carved into the rock of a mountain. Absolutely beautiful. Green trees and plants everywhere and a fresh water spring. But here's the problem. There's only one way in and one way out of En Gedi. And this is where David and his men are hiding. So as soon as Saul and his armies arrive... The good guys are trapped. They can't run away because the only way in or out is inconveniently located directly in front of the enemy camp. So David and his men are stuck, literally, between a rock and a hard place. And they have no choice but to hide in a cave. And that's when this story gets interesting. The Bible's funny sometimes, guys. Saul steps away from the camp to relieve himself, and as best we can tell, he's got to go number two. <laughs> not, not making it up, seriously. So he climbs up into the entrance of, believe it or not, a cave. And that cave just happens to be the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. So David's men are thrilled, and listen to what they say. Here is the day of... This, they're talking to David. They say, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as, you see, as, you, as it shall seem good to you. Now let's pause for a moment and think about those words. Apparently, these men believe that God had spoken directly to David, promising to deliver his enemy into his hand. Now we don't have a record of that prophecy, so it's a bit unclear whether this is a legitimate prophecy or whether it's a false prophecy or whether it's just a rumor that's been spreading around David's men. But at the end of the day, what matters is the suggestion itself. Namely, that these men believe that God has given Saul into David's hands and they're really hoping that he'll kill him. What happens next is unexpected. Listen to this. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All right, let's slow down for a moment and reflect. There are three things that I think are noteworthy. One, David does not kill Saul. And that in itself is pretty important. But he isn't altogether passive. Instead, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Now that may seem pretty benign and insignificant. But I want to quote from my favorite commentary here. This act was far from meaningless because David's confiscation of a portion of the royal robe signified the transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. Furthermore, by removing the corner of the robe, David made Saul's robe to be in a state of non-compliance with Torah requirements. Thus, Saul's most obvious symbol of kingship was made unwearable. In essence, David had symbolically invalidated Saul's claim to kingship. In other words, David's actions here are profoundly meaningful. He does not strike Saul down, even though he could have done so. But David here makes clear by claiming a portion of the royal robe that he is the, clean, he is the king to come. And he simultaneously forces Saul into a position with the law that requires him to remove the royal robes until he can find a replacement. So this action is politically cunning and sharply nuanced. So that's the first note. The second note is that as soon as David cuts off the robe, his conscience cries out against him. He believes that he has done wrong to Saul, and he compels his men to refrain from killing Saul themselves. And then third, David uses the following words. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. The Lord forbid that I should do it. Now that's important, and remember that not a word in the Scriptures is wasted. Everything's there on purpose. Okay, so after David has compelled his men to peace, he exits the cave and he cries out to Saul as he's returning to his camp. He holds up the corner of the royal robes as proof that he had an opportunity to kill Saul but chose not to. And he affirms that he has no intention to rise up against Saul's house. And then he says these words, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. Okay, so let's step back for a moment and identify a pattern because it'll become important later. One, David is tempted by his men to take vengeance. Two, the Lord restrains David from vengeance. And then three, David then trusts God to judge and take vengeance himself. Saul recognizes at this point the situation he's been in. And he, re- he realizes how profoundly vulnerable he was He weeps over his own foolishness. And this is actually the first time that Saul confesses that David will truly be the king over Israel. And he actually pleads with him not to eliminate his house. Traditionally, kings would slaughter the rival king's family when they take the throne. And Saul pleads with David not to do so. He goes out of his way throughout to emphasize that David is better than he is. Now, two chapters later, in chapter 26, we read a story that's structured in almost exactly the same way. Saul hears 
word that David's hiding in the wilderness. So he gathers his army and he camps not far from David's hiding place. This time, David and two of his soldiers go to survey Saul's camp in the middle of the night. And the text says that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon all of the camp, even those who were supposed to be keeping watch. So David and Abishai, one of David's mighty men, sneak into the camp and then actually sneak into Saul's tent while he's sleeping. And there he is, Saul is sleeping with his spear stuck into the ground and his water jug next to his head. Now just like before, Abishai is thrilled because it appears that God has given David's enemy into his hand. And and in, in this case, Abishai himself offers to take Saul's life, but David won't allow it. Just like before, David responds in this way. Who can put out their hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And he uses these words one more time. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, this time, David takes Saul's spear, which is a symbol of his power and his authority, and his water jug, which is a symbol of Saul's life. After they're a safe distance from the camp, David cries out to Saul, shames his men for not protecting their king, and makes it clear to Saul and his men that he had an opportunity to kill the king of Israel, but chose not to. And then, again, he appeals to God as judge over both of them. Saul again confesses his foolishness and repents. Sort of. So again, we see this pattern unfold. David is tempted by his men to vengeance. The Lord restrains David from vengeance. David then trusts God to judge and take vengeance. All right. I think we're ready to read 1 Samuel 25. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25 and hold up your Bible when you're there. Great. Starting in verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Alright, so a few things to note here. One, this episode takes place between the two episodes that we've just discussed. Which means that David and his men are dwelling in the wilderness and moving from place to place in order to keep away from Saul, who is regularly seeking David's life. Second, David and his men have for some time been settled in the wilderness of Moan, which is not far, actually, from Keilah. Remember, David saved the city of Keilah, and God prophesied that he would be victorious over the army of the Philistines. This is just a little bit more than ten miles away from Keilah, the city that the Philistines besieged not two chapters ago. In other words, this isn't the safest place in Israel, and raiders aren't entirely Unusual in these parts. So David and his men, as they dwell in this region, have been something like a wall of protection around the shepherds. They've developed quite a reputation for military might, especially after routing the entire Philistine army. And nobody is going to mess with these shepherds while David and his men are around. 
And then third, this guy Nabal is a Calebite, which means he's from Judah, like David. So you might expect some sort of tribal loyalty here, because there's certainly distant relations. Also, note that this guy Nabal, he's got a funny name, because Nabal basically means fool. And names like that sometimes give you a sneak preview of what's to come. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing at all in the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore... Let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So a feast day is approaching. And naturally, David and his men haven't had adequate time nor adequate facilities to prepare for the feast. They are, in a way, dependent upon the hospitality of their neighbors. And that isn't an extraordinary position in ancient Israel. The law demanded a high degree of hospitality to be shown fellow Israelites. So David's expectation here isn't unusual. He had been, in a way, protecting Nabal's shepherds for some time now. Also, Nabal is a very wealthy man. David's request is that Nabal spare just a bit of his wealth so that David and his men might celebrate the coming feast as well. Keep reading. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from where I do not know? So this is the first major turning point in this passage. Nabal responds to David's request with venom. And don't be fooled by Nabal's words. Who is David isn't an honest question. Because it's followed up immediately with, who is the son of Jesse? In other words, Nabal knows full well who David is. And rather than merely rejecting his tribesmen because he would prefer not to give away his possessions... Nabal suggests that David doesn't deserve the hospitality required by the law because he's broken away from his master Saul. He suggests in not so many words that David is a troublemaker, that David's illegitimately undermining the throne of Saul, and and, and that Nabal has no obligation to David and his men. So, to summarize, that went poorly. Let's see what happens next. Pick it up in verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Okay, so the text makes clear, I think, that Nabal is in the wrong here. But this seems to be an overreaction. 
David hears Nabal's response and immediately gathers two-thirds of his men to go to war against Nabal's house. So this bad situation just took a hard left turn. Keep reading. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of rain and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So one of Nabal's servants overheard the exchange between Nabal and David's young men. And when he hears Nabal's response, he panics. He immediately runs to Abigail, Nabal's wife, who is apparently a lot more sensible than her husband, and warns her that this reaction is going to cause problems. So Abigail prepares a small feast for David's men and rushes to intercept them. So here we have this interesting moment in the scene where there are two things happening at once, right? David and his men, strapped with swords, are headed to Nabal's house. And Abigail and her servants, packed with food, are headed towards David to intercept him. Okay? Keep reading. As soon as she rat, I'm sorry. And as, as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold... David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So this is another glimpse of David headed to war while Abigail is headed to intercept him. They haven't met yet, but we get through the dialogue a pretty grim picture of David's intentions. David swears an oath that he's going to slaughter every male servant and every son of Nabal's because Nabal has rejected David's request for feast day provisions. David is planning to kill every man of his camp. Now look, there are things that happen in Scripture that we can dismiss as cultural. In other words, he said that thing or did that thing, and that doesn't make sense to us because we're coming from a different culture and there were different cultural norms. In cases like that, when the action may seem unusual to us, to them it might have been perfectly acceptable. I don't think that's what's happening here. David, in his anger, was about to slaughter a whole camp full of people because one guy refused to provide his men a meal. And I think that's an overreaction, no matter how you look at it. And I think you and I are supposed to read this and see David's angry pursuit of vengeance. And all of that is supposed to bother you a little bit. And it isn't until this moment that we truly begin to see how valuable and important is the work of Abigail. 
who is on her way to intercept David and attempt to convince him not to do something crazy. Keep reading. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please, let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let, my Lord, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek, you, seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation Himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. So when Abigail arrives, she falls to the ground and she blesses David. And when her... And her speech really emphasizes a few points. One, my husband is a fool, and his response to you was foolish. Two, if you take vengeance upon my foolish husband, you will be guilty. Three, God is using my actions and my words to restrain you from blood guilt. Four, it is God's job to take vengeance on your enemies, not yours. And then five, God is faithful to judge your enemies and He will fulfill His promise to make you king. And what's fascinating about this speech is how insightful it is. Abigail is perfectly perceptive. She clearly understands her husband. She clearly understands David. She clearly understands the situation. She clearly understands God's promise to make David king. But central in all of this is Abigail's theological insight. Listen to her words. If men rise up to pursue you, David, and seek your life, your life, David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. God will take care of you. And the lives of your enemies, God will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation Himself. In other words... When your enemies rise up against you, David, you don't, make, 
You don't take matters into your own hands. You trust God, David. You don't trust your own strength. Because God will work mightily to save His people. You don't return evil for evil, David. God is the judge. Trust His vengeance. Because the people of God don't save themselves. Now, listen to David's response. Keep reading in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, for you have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried to come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Listen to his words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And then again, unless you had hurried to come and meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. In other words, without God's work to restrain my hands from vengeance, if God had not sent you to stop me, I would be guilty before Him. God's the reason. God's the reason. God's the reason I'm not guilty. Without God, I too would be rejected. Without God, I too would have broken this covenant. Without God, I too would have lost the throne. God's the reason I'm not guilty of the blood of these men. Who kept David from sin? God did. Who kept David from guilt? God did. Who struck David's conscience to forbid him from seeking vengeance upon Saul? God did. Who equipped David to resist temptation to strike down the former king of Israel? God did. God is the reason David is better than Saul. God is. Look, three stories back to back to back. Three different scenarios, but the unfolding action is the same. In chapter 4, David is tempted by his men to take vengeance into his own hands. But his conscience is struck within him because the Lord forbids it. In chapter 25, David is tempted by his own pride to take vengeance into his hands. But Abigail is sent by God to intercept him because the Lord forbids it. In chapter 26, David is tempted by his friend to take vengeance into his own hands, but he refused to strike the king because the Lord forbids it. Why is David the better man? God is the reason. God kept him from sin because God equipped him to resist temptation. Because God physically sent Abigail to keep him from blood guilt. God is the reason that David is the better man. God is the reason David remains innocent of the blood of his enemies. God is the reason David didn't strike down the Lord's anointed. And God is the reason David wasn't soaked in the blood of the innocent. David would have taken vengeance into his own hands, but the Lord would not allow it. And so, miraculously, by God's restraining grace, David was pressed to hope in a better judge. Keep reading. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house. 
like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent you to take sent sent to us to you to take to you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaiden is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. There's sharp irony in this scene. Because Nabal, the fool, was enjoying the feast of a king, while the true king remained hungry. And that juxtaposition rings true, doesn't it? The cruelty of this fallen world teaches us that wicked men will feast like kings while many of the just will go hungry. This scene reminds us that things are broken, but just for a little while. Nabal may feast and drink like a king, but the true king is coming and God will judge the fools of this world. When Nabal sobers, Abigail tells him of all that's unfolded. And as soon as the words pass her lips, he's struck dead within. Why? Because God is the best judge, and vengeance belongs to Him. Nabal's death is perfect. This fool got what he paid for, with all the poetry of the great Creator. And that's a foreshadow of what's to come. For the wicked who feast like kings. As for Abigail, the discerning bride who saved a village and their king, she's given the coming king of Israel to be her husband. God was faithful to preserve David by her words and her work. And I think that there isn't a more fitting reward for faithful Abigail than to play so pivotal a role in the redemptive history of God's people. I can think of Four ways that this passage ought to change the way we live. First, praise God for sisters. Look, in the whole of Samuel, perhaps no one is more insightful. Perhaps no one understands the sinful inclinations of man. Perhaps no one understands the redemptive work of God through David. Perhaps no one is more prophetic than Abigail. If there's any parallel at all, it's Hannah at the beginning of the book. And the fact that these two women play such a pivotal role in the redemptive work of God says a lot about how God works. Do not underestimate God's daughters. Look, from the moment the Spirit of God falls on the church in Acts, God's daughters are prophesying to prepare God's people for God's kingdom. 
Sarah and Rachel and Deborah and Ruth and Hannah and Abigail and Esther are but foreshadows of the might of God working through the daughters of God full of the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself constructing a theology of the church that doesn't feature the daughters of God in their faithful service and their faithful example and their faithful counsel and their faithful hope and their faithful prayers and their faithful prophecies, then you should read your Bible a little bit more carefully. Amen? Second, if you are any better than any other man, it's because God has kept you from doing what you wanted to do. I've told this story before, but I think it's worth recalling. When I first moved into my neighborhood, I was speaking to a neighbor of mine about the homeless problem. There are a lot of homeless people around our neighborhood. Many of them are drunks. Many of them are addicted to drugs. And I was sitting there talking to him about that situation as an annoyance. And this guy looked at me. I'll never forget this. He said, I know. I look over there at Evans Plaza and every time I think, but for the grace of God, there go I. Amen. What makes you different from that guy? What makes you better than your alcoholic neighbor? What makes you better than the abusive parent you read about in the paper? What makes you better than the politician on the news who was just caught in the act of adultery? What makes you better than that man? Grace. God's grace keeping you from doing the things you'd really like to do sometimes. David was better than Saul, yes. Why? Because God kept him. And if you're in Christ, God is keeping you. So repent from pride. There's nothing about you that makes you better than anyone else except the grace of God has been at work in you. Shaping and restraining and building and preparing. It leaves no room for pride. Let the one who boasts, boast in Christ. Amen? We read that passage about God saving the least of these. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were rich. Whatever. We read it sometimes in good ways, but very rarely, I think, do we reflect on the implication of that passage, which is that God saves the worst kind of people, and I'm one of those people. (laughs) I think in my hardest moments as a Christ follower, when I watched scenes unfold where other Christ followers were doing things that made me weep, it's helpful to remind yourself that God saves the least of these, and I am one of the least of these. All right, third... Trust in the judgment of God. His vengeance is perfect. Look, there is real suffering in this world, perpetuated by truly wicked people. 
If it doesn't bother you, you're not paying close enough attention. When we see that suffering, especially when we feel that suffering personally, and when we gaze upon the evil works of evil men, we will be tempted to wrath. But all of the wrath of God stored up for the wicked was poured out on Christ or will be poured out on the wicked when Christ returns. All of the wrath of God is poured out on Christ or at the judgment. There is no more room for your wrath. It's not ours to pour out. It's His. Leave it to God because His wrath is hot and His judgment is perfect. And if you trust in Christ, then you must believe that the wrath of God has been perfectly distributed. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen? Finally, trust in Jesus, the the better David. Jesus, too, was provoked to vengeance when the Pharisees mocked Him and questioned Him and defaced the law and abused His people. Jesus steadfastly paced toward the cross. When the Sadducees made a mockery of the temple, defaced the worship of God, defaced the Scriptures, Jesus steadfastly paced toward the cross. When the Roman soldiers spit upon Him, tore off His clothes, beat Him and kicked Him, when they hung Him up and watched Him die, at any moment He could have called down legions to vanquish His enemies, and yet He endured. Beaten, mocked, and crucified, many called upon Him with faithless words, demanding that He call angels down for vengeance. Can you imagine that scene? God is hanging on a cross. And people are saying, go get your angels, God, and kill us all, right? But he didn't. Instead, he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nobody had to be sent to hold Jesus back, to stay Jesus' hand, because Jesus trusted perfectly in the judgment of God. The Son of God had every power at any moment to pour out the wrath of God on wicked men, and yet He bore that wrath to save wicked men. Like me and you. Now that does not mean that Nabal has what's coming to him. But for you and I, Trust in the faithful king who was tempted yet remained without sin and who seeks and saves sinners like us. Amen? Let's take this up together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. 
For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.